This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. All right. Some of you do. (laughs) Rest of you, we believe you'll rejoice before you leave today. It's exciting to worship together with the body of Christ. Let me say that again. It's exciting to worship together with the body of Christ. That portion of it that we call new life. Last week, Pastor Tim started teaching about, since it was Pentecost Sunday, about the day of Pentecost. And today I'm going to not say that same thing, but I'm going to teach some things related to that. And I call this teaching the age of the Spirit. We believe that God is always the same. Past, present, and future. He never changes. But there are things revealed in the Bible that we call covenants. And with God's covenants that He established with a person or a group of people, there were specific unique things that He did with those people living under that covenant. Now you and I live under the time that we call the new covenant because we're living after the cross and after the day of Pentecost. And since the day of Pentecost, we have been living in the age of the Spirit. You get that? Now there were people in the Old Testament, a few, that were anointed by the Holy Spirit. Not many, not every person. And one of the reasons we had so much prolific prophecy was because each individual didn't know how to hear the voice of God. And therefore, God had to speak to His people. He had to guide His people through prophets and prophecy to a larger degree than He has to do today. Now, does He still do that today? Of course He does. But not in the same way that they did under the Mosaic Covenant. So we could say that the Mosaic Covenant was the age of God's revelation as Father by being provider and protector and guide and those sort of things. When Jesus was here for 33 and a half years, then we say that's the age of the Son or the revelation of Jesus Christ. All of the Old Testament pointed towards Him coming. And he came and he fulfilled the plan and purpose of the Father. But on the day of Pentecost, just like the prophet Joel prophesied, there's coming a day in the last days, says God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. On my men servant and on my maid servants, I'll pour out of my spirit. He did that on the day of Pentecost. And guess what? You and I don't have to wait for Him to come anymore. That's a good thing. We don't have to wait for Him to come. He came. See, Jesus said in the book of, I believe it's Luke chapter 24 and verse 49, He said to His disciples, tarry or wait in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. They had to do it because Pentecost hadn't come yet. But when they waited, and they did for days, 
And when they waited, they were in prayer together. They were in one unity, one spirit together. And guess what? The Holy Spirit came. And He came to stay. He came to minister to people in this day and age in a supernatural, revelatory way. And you and I can get in on that. That's good news. Because now we do not have holy places, we have holy people. Say that again. Do you realize if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a holy person? I don't mean a hole-in-your-shoe type of holy. I mean you are a set-apart, sanctified person by the plan and purpose of God. You're a holy person. So we don't have holy places. We have holy people. We have individuals that have the very Spirit of God living in them. And that started when you made Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior. It is because of the cross... It is because of the work of the Holy Spirit that you could even be born again. In the book of John chapter 6 and verse 44, Jesus said from his very own lips, he said, no man can come to the Father unless he draws him. The Holy Spirit drew you to Jesus Christ and enabled you and me to be born again. You heard the gospel message. You heard what Jesus did. You weren't there when Jesus died, was buried and rose again, but you heard about it. The Spirit of God bore witness to you about that, and at some point in some way, you believed it enough to trust Him for your eternal salvation. And the Holy Spirit was involved in all of that, and most of us didn't even know He was doing anything. Isn't that interesting? We just thought we made a decision. We did. But he was the one that was orchestrating it in a realm that you and I did not see. So you came to Jesus Christ and you got born again. You believe the message of John 3 and John uh, 3 and John 3 5. Jesus said, unless an individual is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. Unless you're born again, you can't enter, you can't participate in the kingdom of God. So you got born again, so now you begin to understand about the kingdom of God, the rulership of God Almighty. And we understand it because of the new covenant in a more perfect way than they did through the Mosaic covenant. Thank God for that. Now, there's another scripture I want to get to, and that's Romans chapter 8 and verse 9, related to the Spirit of God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So what happened to you and me when you got born again? The Spirit of God, the very presence of God, came to live inside your spirit. You see, you are a tripartite being. You're a spirit that has a soul that lives in a body. A tripartite, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 indicates that, verse 23 and 4. I pray God your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of the Lord. Faithful is he who calls you will also do it. Thank God. And when you got born again, his spirit came to live in your spirit. See, John 3, 6 indicates that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. 
The part of you that gets born again is your innermost part, your spirit. You have the very life and nature of Jesus living in you today. And if you really believe that, you maybe ought to be shouting the roof off. The very life, the zoe, the God type of life, the very person of the Trinity, the third person of the Trinity, lives in you. 24-7, 365 and one quarter days a year for as long as you're on planet Earth. That's good news. Because you got born again. You made Jesus Lord in your life. You and I don't make Jesus Lord. He's Lord regardless of what you and I do. We don't make him Lord. He is Lord. God made him both Lord and Christ, Scripture says. But you can make him your personal Lord and Master, which is what you did when you got born again. You said, well, I haven't lived a perfect life. Yeah, I know. None of us have. But thank God for his grace, mercy, and love. Thank you, Jesus. So you got born again by the work of the Holy Spirit. Colossians 1.27 said, Christ in you, the hope of glory. He, and he addressed that to believers. Christ is living in you, in the person of the Holy Spirit. 1 John 4, 4. Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Thank God for that. The devil's a big old bad devil. Yeah, I know it, but he's a defeated big old bad devil. And the greater one, Jesus, who defeated him, lives in you. He is greater than that enemy that Jesus defeated at the cross and the resurrection. See, Satan used to have the power of death. He doesn't have it anymore. He doesn't. They say, well, if, that's, if, if he doesn't, why are so many people dying in Christians? Because, A, maybe they lived out their life. Maybe. That's one reason. Maybe they don't know that they don't have to give in to every attack that Satan comes and brings against them. Because he's defeated. See the book of uh, Revelation chapter 1, I believe it's verse uh, 18, that says, Jesus arose with the keys of death and hell. Now do we re really believe that? If we really believe that, that means we don't have to accept as final anything that he says, I'm talking about Satan now, anything he says or does. The one that determines life is, is not the devil, is Jesus. He has the keys. Keys open locks, opens doors. Jesus has the keys. So Satan comes and whispers in your ear, you're going to die. You can say, you a liar. You a flat out liar. I'm not dying prematurely. I'm only going to leave this world when Jesus wants me to come for eternity. And just tell him, that is the devil, where to go and how soon to get there. You're not taking any of that. So, we'll talk about five benefits of having the Spirit of God living in you. Another passage of Scripture, Romans chapter 8, verse 11 says, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Thank God. Let's, let's look at that. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, 
you're born again, he does. That settles the if. So you can take out the if. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead does in fact dwell in you. Now, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal body. What's a mortal body? A mortal body is a body that's subject to dying. All right? So the Spirit of Christ that got Jesus up out of the grave lives in you and me, and the Word of God says that same Spirit, not a different, but a same Spirit, will raise or give mortal the life of God into your mortal body because of the Spirit who lives in you. Now, have you ever thought of it like this? I have a need. So I, I discover that I have this need, and so I go to God with it. And so I pray, and I pray sincerely, and I pray according to the promises of God, believing that God's going to hear me, and he's going to do it. But lots of times our mentality is this. I'm here, I'm praying, God is up there someplace in heaven far, far away in another galaxy. And I'm praying, and so God somehow has to get from there down to here to where I am. That's Old Testament thinking. That's not New Covenant thinking to think that way. Do you know the Spirit of God, if you're a believer, is closer to you than your next breath. He's closer to you than your next breath. Why? Because He lives in you. And so, Father, I thank you that your word says that by your stripes I'm healed. Now, Lord, you know that I have, I have this pain in my body here. So, Lord, I am declaring, here's how you appropriate it, I am declaring what your word says by faith, and I believe whatever the cause or the source of this thing has to leave now, and the Spirit of God who lives in me is, in fact, right at this moment, releasing that healing power in that area of my body. That's how you pray and declare it. You're not waiting for him to come down from heaven. He already came. It would be as foolish to pray that as it would be to pray, Jesus, would you leave heaven and come and die for me because I have a sin? He's already done that. He did that once for all. I don't care what your sin is. I don't care how, how bad it is or how many people sins that way. Never does the price have to be paid again. It was paid one time for all. And it is His precious blood is sufficient to cover and cleanse every sin, past, present, and future. Hallelujah. So we don't pray that way. What do we do? We believe the Word of God when it says that Jesus died for us and as us. That's by his stripes in the same way. Just like we believe his blood uh, provides atonement, his stripes provided healing. He don't need to come and die anymore. He doesn't need to be scourged anymore. He doesn't need to be crucified anymore. He came, he did it. The day of Pentecost came as a result of it and was poured out. And you and I believe it, we receive it, we respond to it. Thank you, Jesus. Now, isn't there such a thing as a corporate anointing? Absolutely, but that's a part of another message. But there can be a corporate anointing in which the Spirit of God becomes tangible. Now, he can do that in the New Covenant just like he did it in the Old Covenant. You remember when Solomon dedicated the temple? 
And the Spirit of God came so heavily, so manifest, became tangible, so that the, the priest couldn't stand to do the ministry that they were uh, uh, supposed to be doing. Now, can the Spirit of God do that today? Yes, He can. I've been there. I've experienced that. I know He can do that. But that is a different, not a different spirit, but a different manifestation of the Spirit. What we're talking about today is He lives in us all the time. And that same Spirit that raised Jesus up is going to get us up out of the grave. It's going to raise your physical body that has decayed. And you're going to be raised up by the same Spirit. But you don't have to wait till the resurrection. The same Spirit can touch your mortal body now. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Now look what that said. Your body is the temple. This room is not a temple. It isn't. It's an auditorium. The temple is every believer that's in this room. Your body is the temple. Your spirit is the dwelling place. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, that is the Holy Spirit is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own. You can go to the most holy place designed by man to be holy and that is not the temple of God under the new covenant. I've been to Jerusalem. I've been to the temple mound. I've been under the temple mound, that is, where the foundation of the wall is. I've been to several, quote, holy, unquote, sites. None of them are the temple of God. I've been to the upper room. We've prayed for people in the upper room, and they got filled with the Holy Spirit. But that's not the temple of God. The temple of God in the new covenant is your redeemed spirit. That is. And guess what? That is present everywhere you go all the time. It really is. Now, I know we know this up here, but we need to get it so ingrained in us. Martin Luther said, he was, this is my version of his quote, is he would like to, if he had the ability, to drive the word of God into the heads of every believer. We need to get that truth that He is in us and with us all the time, so driven into our consciousness that we can live in that. Another thing, another benefit of the Spirit of God is we have the ability to pray a special way. 1 Corinthians 14, 14 says, For if I pray in a tongue, and that's the Greek word glossa, which means a language that is, has not been studied nor is known by the speaker, glossa. Another use of that word is glossolalia, the speaking with glossa or in tongues. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind or my understanding is unfruitful. One of the blessings of having a prayer language, it's a way to contact and release your redeemed spirit. Release the Holy Spirit from within by praying in a language that you've never studied and you don't know. Boy, this is great. You know, I'll give you part of my testimony later, but since I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I have done about 90% of my praying 
in my prayer language. You know why? Because I don't want to be limited to my little peanut brain. Your brain, my brain has limitations to it, folks. We only know so much, and sometimes we don't really know all that we think we know. That's even a further limitation to it. But your spirit, your redeemed spirit, the spirit of God who lives in you, is in communion with your redeemed spirit. John, uh, the book of John, what is that uh, verse? No, that's the book of Romans, chapter 8 and verse 16. It says, His spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit in you and your redeemed spirit, they're talking together. And when you're praying in your prayer language, you're giving vent to the Holy Spirit, speaking through your spirit, and your brain is in neutral. It's in neutral, and you're letting it flow out unhindered. So he said, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. So what's that mean? That means you don't know what you're talking about? Yeah, that's probably right. But the companion to it is God can tell you what you're praying about. He can let you know. And actually, you can ask him to, and sometimes he does. Sometimes he doesn't. I've been awakened many times in the night, felt the urge to pray. And I might lay there and pray a few minutes. I might pray an hour or two. And sometimes I know for whom I'm praying, and sometimes I don't. But it doesn't really concern me because I know if I'm praying the perfect will of God, that is going to get accomplished. Now, it's nice if God says, well, here's what you said. Here's who who you were praying for or what you were praying about. And that's great, but it doesn't have to do that. So another way, another benefit is prayer. Another one is 1 Corinthians 14, 4. He who speaks in a tongue edifies or builds himself up. Jude 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. As you pray in your prayer language, you are edifying or building yourself up on the inside. When I prepare to teach, preach, or have a deliverance session or a counseling session, whatever area of ministry it's going, form it's going to take, I try to spend as much time as I possibly can praying in my prayer language so that when I go out to do whatever it is I'm about to do, it becomes more about God than me. Because whatever I might be able to face, most of the time I only know a small portion of it, just a real small portion of it. But guess what? The greater one who lives in me, he knows everything about it. There's not a thing about that situation, that person, that problem that he don't know. He knows everything about it. But I know only a very small portion of it. So if I can pray and build my my human spirit up by the power of the Holy Spirit that's within me, then I am much more able to deal with whatever the situation and circumstance is than I would have been before. And you know something else I've discovered? I've discovered when my spirit gets built up strong, I don't become fearful of anything. No person, no demon, they don't matter. You know why? Because the one who's in power over them lives in me. And if I am walking 
and obeying the Holy Spirit, it's amazing what He can do. There have been times that I have, in the midst of ministry, spoken out a word of knowledge or word of wisdom or a prophetic word or something and had the person to whom I was ministering say, how did you know that? And I said, well, it's because the guy that knows everything gave me just a tiny little sliver of that information. That's how I knew that. He didn't tell me everything about it. He just told me just enough to get the message across to that person. Had it to happen numerous times. So you and I need to build ourselves up. Number four, we need to hear the voice of God. Look at Revelation 2.7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He said that to each of the seven churches. The one that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. You know, the Holy Spirit is speaking to New Life Church. Yes. On regular occurrences. Should be almost daily, if not daily, occurrences. We should be hearing the voice of God and being filled with the Holy Spirit having the Spirit of God release within us His knowledge, His wisdom, His power, it will enable us to hear His voice more clearly. So how do you know the voice of God? Well, anything that purports to be the voice of God has to be in agreement with the written Word of God. That's number one. So you and I need to judge every voice is it in agreement with the Word. Now to do that, you've got to know what it says. To know what it says, you got to read it. You got to study it. You got to meditate in it. You need to personalize, declare it, so that when those voices come, and they will, we can d differentiate between the voice of God and demonic voices, or just plain old human voice, or our own voice. Is it God or me? Lauren Cunningham wrote a great book years ago. Lord, is that really you? That was a good book about hearing the voice of God. Is that really you? Is that really you, God? I've said that lots of times. Lord, is that me or is that you? I have this wonderful idea. Is that me or is that you? You know what I find out? Sometimes it's me. I told the Lord one time in my youth, Lord, if you'll keep up with me, we'll win the world. I only said that one time. I soon found out that wasn't God's thought or His will at all. That was mine. So Lord, I repent from that. Thank you, Jesus, for your forgiveness. Now let's move on. You know why? Because God knows what He's doing, and if we'll hear His voice and respond according to it, we can accomplish a whole lot more than we would ever any other way. So hearing the voice of God, and number five, power to be an overcomer. Now you can't be an overcomer unless you've got obstacles to overcome. Folks, that was so profound you didn't get it yet. The only way you and I can be an overcomer is to face difficulties and overcome them. And the way we overcome them is through the victory that Jesus imparts to us because He has already overcome them. And He has empowered us with what we need 
to do the same. Look at this scripture. 2 Peter chapter 1, 3 and 4. As his divine power has given to us, we'll stop there, his divine power who lives in us has, what tense is that? Past tense, right? Has given, has given. What given mean? It means you didn't earn it, he gave it. Because of his grace and mercy. You and I don't earn any of these things. They're all provisions that Jesus made and gave to us. His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Wow. That means you and I already have given to us everything you need in this life. Everything you and I need to live God-like. Godliness means God-like. Everything has been given to us. Where is it? It's through the knowledge of Him who has called us to glory and virtue. That means we need to get to know Him personally. How you do that? Through the Word of God, through fellowship with Him, through worship, through adoration, spending time with Him. Through the knowledge of Him who has called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceeding great and precious promises. Ah, here's part of the solution. Appropriating these great and precious promises is a way to activate what you and I have already been given. Think of it like this. Let's say you got a million dollars in the bank. All right? Would you agree with me? You'd like to have a million dollars in the bank? There's about six people want a million dollars in the bank. The rest of you, believe it so you can start tithing off of it, would you? But let's say you got an X amount of money in the bank and the bank gives you checks, blank checks, and you can write a check up to the amount of money you got, right? We understand how this works. You are appropriating the funds that are to your account in the bank to an actual need by writing, signing, and handing the check in. You're appropriating. Until you do that, until you appropriate it some way, it's not going to do you one ounce of good. For that money that's in your account, you've got to appropriate it, get it out of that account through your check to whatever venue you want to spend it. We understand that. The promises of God work the same way. Here are all of these things that God has given us for everything we need in life, everything we need in godliness, and he has given us these things by promises. You know, a, 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 a check is a type of a promissory note. You know, I'm, I'm writing this, I'm making this out to Kroger, you know, I'm letting them know because I'm giving them a check that I... I'm, in one sense, I'm saying to them, I have the money to actually pay for what I bought, and it's in the bank, and you give this to them, and they give you money. Okay? You and I have everything we need for life and godliness already in our account, but you access it, you appropriate it by the promises of God. So that means you and I have to know what the Word of God says about that thing. It's in here. Specifically in the New Testament, the New Covenant. For us today, it's in here, these promises. He has given to us great and precious promises that through these, watch this phrase, you may be partaker of the divine nature. Well, that's a big deal. 
Now, I'm not God, and I'm never going to be God. Isn't that good news? None of us are ever going to be God, but what he is saying here, as you and I believe, act on by faith the promises of God, we are partaking of his divine nature that already lives in us. That's how you do it. Having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. You and I need to appropriate the promises of God by believing them, by faith declaring they are in us, they're working on our behalf. And as you do it, you might be amazed to see all that God has been working for you that you didn't yet know about. And that's good news. We'll give you a little personal testimony. If you've been around here for a while, you've heard this. But for those that haven't, and those online, this might be new to you. I started preaching as a 17-year-old boy between my junior and senior year in high school. I started pastoring when I was about 18 and a half, a country Baptist church. I got filled with the Holy Spirit when I was 19 years old. And about the time I was 20, they gave me the left foot of fellowship. And you may not know what the left foot of fellowship is. It means they told me I could leave. In fact, I was told to leave. Not just permitted to, I was told to leave. And the reason in my offense was that I got hungry for God. I discovered after pa- I was raised in church from the time I was two weeks old. Been raised in church all, went to church regularly from infancy all the way up. Didn't always do what's right, but always went to church. There is a difference. I was pastoring that church and I found out I was in over my head. I did not know what I was doing. I'm 18 years old. What do I know? I've been I'm in Bible college at the time. I was learning a few time, a few things, but there was so much I didn't know. Situations would arise. How do you handle this? I had an older brother who was a pastor. I had a brother-in-law who was a pastor. I had an uncle who was a pastor. And I had another brother who was becoming a pastor. You can't get by with nothing in a house full of preachers like that. So I realized I needed help. And we had a guest speaker at chapel one day who was also a Baptist pastor. They didn't let anybody preach there that wasn't Baptist. You had to be a conservative Baptist at that. And so, but this Baptist pastor, what they did not know, the fellow faculty member who scheduled him knew him months ago and did not know that since the last time he had talked to him, something had happened to this pastor. He had experienced his own personal Pentecost. And this guy who recommended him didn't know it. So here's this undercover charismatic Baptist pastor. (laughs) He gets up and he says, I remember this so well. He said, opened his Bible. He said, today, how many of you would like to hear a good Baptist sermon? Yes, we're Baptist. Sure, we'd like to have a good Baptist sermon. Would it be all right if I preach one of John the Baptist's sermons? 
Yeah, that's great. We like John. He gets up, reads a passage where John says, there's one coming after me who's mightier than I, whose shoes I'm not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge the floor and gather the wheat into the garment, into the basket, and burn up the chaff. And he starts off from that. Well, everybody's, everybody's good with this. Because we believe Pentecost actually happened, but it was a historical event that has nothing to do with us today. Had no real effect on us. All right? It happened. Yes, we'll debate that it did in fact happen, but well, what's it doing for us today? Well, it doesn't do anything for us. That was for the first century church. So he preached that. Gave his testimony. And I tell you, the longer he gave his testimony, the quieter that chapel got. Now, it always happened that after the guest speaker, the chapel speaker spoke, they would have him to go over to one side of the chapel, and any of the students that want to come by and talk to him, they gave you a few extra minutes before the next class so you could go say to the guy whatever you want to say. But you know what they did to that guy that day? They didn't do that. Soon as he got through, I mean, the, 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 the dean ran up there, took the microphone, and a couple of guys got this fellow, and away he went through the back door. They did not want him contaminating us. <laughs> but you know, what he said stirred a fire in me and another student. He was a pastor too. My age, he didn't know as much or any more, at least, than me. And we didn't know much hardly at all together. You know, we did not only not know much, we didn't even suspect much. So, I said to Billy, Billy was from East Tennessee, up in the mountain. I said to Billy, I said, Billy, I want what that guy said. He said, I do too. I said, I not only want it, I need it. He said, man, I need it bad. And we determined that we would meet together every night after work. I worked in the school print shop till 10 o'clock at night. So we would get together at 10 o'clock, because he worked in another part of the building, and we'd get together at the work in the chapel. They didn't lock the doors. So we lived in the dorm close by, and we would come and go into the chapel. And we'd get together and pray. And in between, we would study the scripture. We'd start with the book of Acts. He quoted scriptures out of Acts, the five occurrences in Acts where people receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit. So we studied, and we studied, and we prayed, and we studied. We read books about Charles Finney and D.L. Uh, Moody and, and uh, Charles um, Spurgeon and a bunch of people like that that had some sort of experience. And then we read about present-day people that said they had a supernatural experience. Then we tried to find people that we could would know about, and we didn't find very many people. You know why? Because we stayed within our own little group. There's a whole lot of spirit-filled people around, but we wouldn't go there because we prayed we'd get something we didn't need. We'd catch something as if it were a virus. So we wouldn't go to those places. We wanted a Baptist spirit. You know, we discover no such critter exists. 
there is the Holy Spirit who is available for everybody. You can't put a name tag on him like that. So, but you know what? If you get hungry enough, you'll go looking for where the food is. Finally, after we exhausted all of the theology books that were Baptist, that talked about the Holy Spirit, we exhausted all, all of the testimony books we could give, get. We listened to all the reel-to-reel tapes. I'm talking about in the Stone Age. Real ta- I'm talking about reel-to-reel tapes. Okay? That's what we had. We'd listen. Somebody, I heard, boy, let's get that tape. Let's, let's get a copy of that tape. Let's listen to it. We exhausted all that. One day, I go with my brother and another pastor to a Pentecostal church, which we didn't go to. And we heard the pastor preach the Word of God about the day of Pentecost. Now, I was suspect of him because he was a Pentecostal. And I knew those guys could shout and jump and run the aisles, but they were not orthodox in their theology, according to us. But you know what it did? It it made me hungrier. So we kept going. It took me a year to renew my mind to the truth of the baptism of the Holy Spirit was for today. Because I had a theological hang-up about that. And not only that, I'm a left-brained oriented person. A left-brained dominant person, meaning I like things logical, sequential, in order. Now I know some of you right-brained people, you just scattered everywhere. But us left-brained people, we got to have things kind of a little bit orderly. All right? And I couldn't make my theology... I couldn't put the Holy Spirit in a left brain mentality. Because every time I tried to, it seemed he jumped out of the box. So finally, I am so desperate. It was on a Thursday afternoon. This is before Debbie and I got married. Actually, almost two years before we got married. On the thir- and I was pastoring in this church, this Baptist church. I taught Sunday school. Then I preached on Sunday morning. Then I taught training union. Then I preached on Sunday night. Then I got in my car and drove back to college. So I had to do four things on any given Sunday. So I, I really need help. So I got down in the little woods behind my father's place. There was an old tree that had been blown over. And it was just the right height. I could go, go and kneel down behind it, lay my Bible on it, and it was the right height for me to read Scripture. So I prayed and I declared... Lord, I need this. I need this. I begged him for it. I pleaded the blood of Jesus over me because I heard somebody. They said they did that and they got baptized in the Holy Spirit. So I pleaded the blood. It didn't do anything. Then I read for another fellow said he got sanctified and he got it. Well, I tried to get sanctified. Nothing happened. I tried to fast. All I got was hungry. But on this Thursday afternoon, all of that was behind me. I said, God, I'm going to accept the baptism in the Holy Spirit the same way I accepted you as my Lord and Savior, and that is by faith. 
I believe what the Word of God says is true. I believe it enough, I accept it. And from this time forth, I don't care what emotions come or go, I'm going to declare that I am baptized in the Holy Spirit. And if somebody asks me, I'm going to tell them I am. And you better make sure I am. <laughs> I look back on it and think, well, that was funny. Tell God, you better do something. Yeah, right. But you know, God, I think he gets, he may get a kick out of our, some of the things we say and do, but he can read the heart and overlook some of the junk. All right? Thank God for that. So that was Thursday. I didn't feel a thing, nothing. Didn't see any visions, didn't speak in tongues, didn't feel any special presence of God, nothing like that. Sunday morning, I'm driving to church in my 1960 Lark. 1960 Lark looks like a shoebox. Straight standard shift. I'm driving to church. I'm listening to my brother John's radio program from the church where he was pastoring. He was a Baptist too. I'm listening to his radio program. And I'm hearing this lady sing a song, and the name of the song was, It's Real, It's Real. Oh, I know it's real. Thank God the doubts will settle, for I know, I know it's real. Now, the song message is about salvation. I wasn't thinking about salvation. I was thinking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So I'm driving along, and I'm saying, Yeah, it's real. Yeah, it's real. Next thing I realize, I have pulled over to the side of the road, I got my little lark in neutral. I got the hand emergency brake pulled up. And I got my hands on the inside of the car, praising God, speaking in tongues. I didn't have very many words, but, boy, I enjoyed those four words. So thank you, Jesus. And it was as if God got in that car with me. Now, what I found out later, theologically, he was there in that car with me all the time. But he just manifested his presence in a way that I could recognize it. When I kind of came to and I thought, how did I stop? Well, I got the emergency brake on, I got it out of gear, I had enough sense to do that. I'm going on to church, so I drove on to church. Now you have to understand, this is a Baptist church. We got a road choir on Sunday morning. We got bulletins. We've denoted everything that God's ever going to do that day on that piece of paper. And so what I would do, as soon as I got to the church, I was usually the first one there. Surprise, surprise. I'd go back to my office, and nobody saw me or heard from me until I went to my Sunday school class to teach. I left that, go back to my office, wait till the choir got ready to walk out, and I'd walk out to the platform behind them. I never spoke to anybody. I never greeted anybody at the door until after church. I didn't want them messing with me. Because people would come up and try to engage me in conversation and get my thoughts off of what I knew they needed to be on. Therefore, I, wouldn't, I didn't want that. So I'd stay away from people. So, but you know what? I found myself. This was totally unintentional by me. When I got there that day, I went to my office, laid my Bible down, and I walked and prayed in the auditorium, people started coming in. And when I see somebody, I'd run to the door, oh, so good to see you today. After about a dozen people that I had done that to, I noticed people looking at me strange. What's happened to our little preacher boy? 
We don't usually see him until he gets ready to preach. So I was just greeting people and shaking hands with them. When I got up to preach that morning, I imitated this guy that I heard in chapel. I said, I'm going to preach a good Baptist sermon today. Who would like to hear a good Baptist? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Pastor, we'd like to hear a good Baptist sermon. Okay, that's why I'm going to preach. And so I started off with the same scripture. It's a man sent from God whose name was John. Blah, 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 blah. And I started on. And the more I preached, the bigger their eyeballs got. I was taught in homiletics, preparation and delivery of sermons. The way you're supposed to deliver a sermon is your, your button is supposed to be in your coat. You're not supposed to wear anything but long sleeve white cotton shirts. And you're supposed to stand with one hand on the pulpit at all times. If you're going to motion with this hand, this hand's got to be here. If you're going to motion with, with this hand, then this one's got to be here. And you never move out from beyond the platform. I perfected that. I was good at that. I could, I could pack a 15-minute sermon so full, it'd take you all week to realize what I said. But you know, I got up that Sunday morning, laid my Bible out, read my scripture, my text, and I fully intended to preach like I normally preach. I intended to. But for some reason, I didn't do it. I, I, I kind of came to myself and I realized I'm way over here. I was like, what am I doing over here? So I'd go back. And then I'd get excited. And I'd go over here. And we had... The platform wasn't hardly as high as this one, but there were steps. So I realized at one point I had gone down the steps and I was down here. And I those people were looking at me strange. What is going on? What is he doing? What is he doing? He's never done that before. Nobody said anything that day. I think they were so startled, they went shot. By the next Sunday, same thing happened. That's, that happened on Sunday morning, happened on Sunday night. Next Sunday, same thing happened. After that, a couple of people came and said, what happened to you? You don't preach like you used to. And I, in my youth, I blurted out. I said, because I got baptized in the Holy Ghost. They said, you did what? And that went on for a while. And then I got called up before the deacon board. Now the deacon board makes all decisions and what they say is law. After they had the congregation to put their rubber stamp on it. So the board, they called me up for the board. And they said, you're young. We realize that. We don't do, want to do anything to hinder you, but we don't believe what you're teaching now. They said, it's not our doctrine. I said, well, if it's not our doctrine, it really should be because it's in the Bible. And they said, we know it's in the Bible, but it's not our doctrine. I said, but it should be. And they said, we're going to give you a couple of choices. Number one, promise us that you'll never mention the Holy Spirit again and you can stay our pastor. I said, I can't do that because I might be led by the Holy Spirit to talk about it. I can't promise you that. I'd be lying. They said, well, then don't ever 
mention any of the gifts specifically speaking in tongues. Because see, I told them the whole story. And I said, I can't promise that. They said, well, if you can't do either of those two things, then we have no choice but to give you two final weeks and then you're released. I said, okay. Now, I'm, I'm pretty sharp, but sometimes I'm slow. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Six services. That means, according to our Constitution, they got to let me preach six services. I looked it up. If they throw me out before then, they got to like quadruple their salary they were giving me. So they, they, I knew they weren't going to do that. So I said, that means I got six services. I'm going to tell them everything I know, everything I have suspected about the Holy Spirit. And I did. Do you know those were the, the six largest services we'd ever had? And it was because everybody that had ever been a member of the church wanted to come back and see this dumb bunny who was talking about this Holy Ghost and speaking in tongues. And so I thank God they're here. They're going to hear it. So I preached it. Last service, I talked to my brother before and this other pastor that I prayed with frequently. And they said, well, you know the passage of Scripture, Jesus said, if, they, if you give them his word and they don't receive it, it said, dust off your shoes. Yeah, that's what it says. So at the last service, I'd already turned in my keys to the uh, chairman of the deacons before that. Last service, I took my shoes in the altar, knocked the dust off of them, read the scripture to them, said, God bless you, and walked out the aisle. Got to my car and cried all the way home. Because I thought, boy, you have ruined yourself. Nobody's ever going to believe anything you say because you couldn't even be a success at this first little country church. Actually, while I was there a year and a half, the church had more than doubled. We had two or three miraculous healings occur. That's another story. But God did do some things. But what I found out later was what sometimes appears to be a failure is merely the circumstance for elevation or promotion. You know what I, I felt like God did for me when I looked on it later? I said, Lord, you release me from one thing to release me on the world. Hallelujah. Best thing that ever happened to me. Thank God for those Baptists that kicked me out. Thank you, Jesus. They did something good. Now, my point in all of that is this. I don't care what background you come from. If Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life, you need to receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And don't stop with an experience. It's a lifestyle. It's not a one-time experience and that's all so you can go on a speaker's tour someplace. It's something that God has done for you to change your life so you in turn can be used by God to affect other people's lives. It's an opportunity for ministry and empowerment for ministry. That's what it's all about. See, he wanted them to be filled on the day of Pentecost so that they could be witnesses unto him in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth.
That was the reason for it. Same reason for us today. Same reason. Now I want you to think with me. Have you ever received the baptism in the Holy Spirit like I described it? Like the Bible talks about it. So I've been born again. I have Him living in me. I agree totally. You do. But have you experienced the release of the Holy Spirit? Have you got a prayer language you can pray in whenever you decide to use it? And you can. Have you got that? 